Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I was getting divorced right when Trump was elected. I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that the, the, the malignant presence of Trump beyond all the horrifying political things he did wreak romantic damage. Welcome to Love Lives, a podcast from The Independent, where I, Olivia Petter, will be asking guests about the different loves of their lives. Today, I am delighted to be joined by the brilliant memoirist and writer Emma Forrest. Emma is the author of four novels. She has developed numerous film and TV projects. Her latest book, Busy Being Free, charts how Emma traded her Hollywood marriage and LA mansion for an attic flat in North London. I absolutely adored it and I'm so excited to be able to speak to Emma about it today in a little bit more depth in addition to hearing all about the loves of her life. So let's get started. Hi Emma, how are you? Um, I'm muggy but <laughs> optimistic. That's a Does very that sound good? good description. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very good description. Um, so as I said in the intro, I absolutely loved Busy Being Free. Can you tell us a bit more about it and what led you to writing it? Ooh, okay. So I guess to some people it will be considered a sequel to Your Voice in My Head, which was my first memoir. And there's a decade between them, actually. I kind of like the idea of mm. allowing yourself as a novelist one memoir per decade. Um, seems like a good ratio. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, you know what my publisher was saying all the time, they get submitted books that say in the vein of Fleabag, in the vein of Fleabag. And that just means it's a book by or about a confused, romantically jumbled young woman. And I guess what isn't so far off is it's what happens to Fleabag next? You know, what happens when you hit middle age and romantic obsession and being guided by romantic obsession and the cities you choose to live in and the clothes you buy and the air tickets you buy all being led by love how does that look on a middle-aged person and uh for me I thought a lot about the Elizabeth Taylor retort when she was asked why she'd never done it's not a retort it's her response when she was explaining why she's never done a nude scene was once you've taken all your clothes off, there's nothing left to do but put them back on. So for me, it made sense, given that I'd been sexually active since I was 16, to hit 40 and walk away from it all and not engage in sex, in romance, in dating. I held no hand except my child's for five years. Um, I didn't really feel comfortable accepting invitations to dinner parties because I didn't want to be around. It got very addictive, actually, being alone. Um, once that shuts down, you draw a power from it. And it's really scary, the idea of relinquishing it and going back into the world of romance. Mm, that's so interesting to frame it that way, because it's like we talk about love addiction and yeah. sex addiction. Yeah. But I can imagine when you get so far along in the process of the inverse of yeah. it, 
it then becomes its own kind of addiction, like you said, and Completely. it's very hard to bring yourself back into yeah. and find a balance. Because the idea, you know, the archetype of the woman hitting their stride in their 14s and being at the peak of their sexual power, I found absolutely to be true. So if you don't share it with anyone, then you're hoarding it. And that feels kind of great. Yeah, that is interesting. I want to ask you about that, actually, because everyone I talk to always tells me, you know, when you turn 35, that's when women really get their most sexually confident. And, you know, because you feel more confident in your skin, more confident about your body. You just don't overthink things as much. Where do you think that comes from? Is it is it about just giving less of a shit or is it about being more kind of I hate the word empowered but I guess more kind of sure of yourself and who you are I think it's about being too tired to perform like life does get literally more tiring um especially when you have um responsibilities you know like the itemized bills and the child care and the working with great joy when you're able to work rather than procrastinating. That happens when you have a kid. Um, And so I think you're just too tired to perform. And when I look back, so much of my early sexual history was what I would give in exchange for being being chosen, for being told I was pretty, for being told I was attractive, um, and being so... Uh, attuned to the shapes, physical and emotional, that I should should mm. be making, um, and just I think becoming middle aged, you just you're too tired <laughs> to fake to fake it, you know, in 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 all the ways that that means. Mm. You know? And and what was it that led you to that decision to have a period of celibacy following your divorce? Was it something that was kind of very intentional that you? you know, you got divorced and you thought, right, this is something that I need to do for a fixed amount of time. Or was it more just something that kind of happened organically? And then you're like, this feels really good. I'm going to keep going. I think I wanted to go back to my factory setting. That's one way of looking at it. I think another is the idea of Alice coming back to her real size after being, you know, on her adventures. Mm -hmm. But what's your real size? Like you just need silence and space to remember what shape and size you were before. Because I know I was in really good shape when I met my husband. I mean, actually, it's interesting because I was in insane physical shape and good mental shape. I lived in Los Angeles right before Uber and Lyft became a thing. And I didn't know how to drive. So I would walk up and down unwalkable, like literal mountains. You know, everyone in my life at one point, like I'd go to the doctors and they'd say, I think I saw you walking the hard shoulder of the motorway, <laughs> you know, the freeway. It's like, yeah, that was me. And so I was in insane physical shape. Um, and uh, I think it was a big deal that I was getting divorced right when Trump was elected because he became, so, especially given that I was living in Los Angeles, an emblem of... You know, the man who's openly repulsed by middle-aged women, as I was turning 40, um, and a man who is physically repulsive, who was hovering everywhere, just you could see how much his wife didn't want to be around him. And I think that probably had a trickle. I swear to God, I think it had a trickle-down effect on relationships that were hanging in the balance that may otherwise have survived. Mm -hmm. Like you look at Michelle and Barack and how much, you know, the, the, the documentary pictures where it's like, 
he's put his coat on her shoulders. They're into each other, like they're hot for each other. And I also imagine that there were relationships in the balance that had the trickle down reward of the the turn on bright light from them. Mm. You know, like I know that sounds kind of crazy, but I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that the, the, the malignant presence of Trump beyond all the horrifying political things he did wreaked romantic damage on people, Mm. um, on couples. And um, I ended up moving to London and there was a very different thing where, also remember I'd been married, so I had not experienced apps at all. Like that was the whole period that I was in one relationship. And I think I probably stayed in the relationship longer than I would have otherwise because I was so aware that were the only way Mm. people meet. But in America, in the tail end of my marriage, I would be approached by men at the gym or in cafes or at Pilates. People there still had conversation. Um, When I got to London, it was a completely different culture. It was like I exited the plane and any level of attraction I had had was like gone, like left at customs as as I walked through Heathrow. And I even experimented because a couple of months after I got back in London and no man had spoken to me or looked at me, I had to go for work to Atlanta in America. And I got off the plane. It was like, attention, male attention. It was so crazy. So weird. So, um, it is like that though. I noticed that too. My dad lives in the States and whenever yeah. I'm there, I mean, I don't actually get chashed up there either, but, but you I notice there's that. much more of a, an openness, like mm. a social openness mm-hmm. there that, than there is here. Yeah. And I think with dating, it's just not that much of a big deal to approach someone you think is attractive and start talking to them. Whereas here, someone does that to you, you look at them like they're completely bonkers. And, and, and it is a shame because like like you said, apps are the only option and they come with so many hurdles and it's such a complicated game because you're dealing with these like cyborgs of humans trying to humanize people and it's impossible. I don't know if you remember I say in the book, I, I, I think the next vanguard of apps will be, I need to smell someone before I can yeah. agree to meet up with them. Like, I want to know what their scent yeah. is. That's really important. Um, I can't deal with that part. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. And so when you when you came out of this kind of period of celibacy, how did you feel like you had returned to your factory settings? I did. I felt good. Um, and again, I timed it. There was the invasion of the capital and that felt like, um, a part, you know, I had, I gotten through Trump's term. I told myself that I wouldn't date for that. Once I realized I hadn't been dating, I was like, Oh, I'm good. I feel good. And I'm going to stick with this. And this is the amount of time I've set myself is I'll wait till he's gone. Mm. Um, which I did. Uh, there was the invasion of the capital. I think I started dating and met a really lovely, guy that I dated for a year and a half like pretty soon after that like probably weeks after the invasion of the capital felt like the drawbridge has come down (laughs) yeah and I mean because it's something that I think lots of people are now kind of experimenting with themselves like I remember at the start of 2023 there were loads of tweets about like Gen Z people as well saying I'm gonna try celibacy yeah for this year this is my year of celibacy and it's an interesting thing that I think women in particular are being drawn to and I, I wonder what it is emotionally and psychologically that is kind of telling us to to stop and like you know kind of withdraw from it is it is it a form of like control over over trying to get control over an uncontrollable it's situation it's peace as well and it's 
I look, I really like being by when I say by myself, I mean like even if I'm in a relationship, mm. I like time in a day to be by myself. Um and I'm really lucky because I have a kid who's temperamentally similar in a lot of ways that, you know, she'll like to go off and play Lego for an hour and a half. And I can read a book for an hour and a half in a different room and know we're both safe, sort of like satellites orbiting each other. And I guess that's my dream as well for a romantic relationship is that. Um, But I think it was also really lovely not having to feel like I needed, I talk about it in the book, the things you have to do to keep being picked for the team Mm. um, after a certain age and to just throw down the ball and say, I'm not playing. You know, and the fear is instilled in women as well about fertility and about, you know, time and being put on the shelf Mm. and all of that. But a year goes really fast. Yeah. And it's really useful. Yeah I, I, yeah, I know a lot of people that are doing it and I think it's actually a really, really beneficial thing to do, particularly now, like the games that you mentioned, like, you know, with dating apps, the games have never been more, yeah, <laughs> they have never right. been more complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you write in the book that it's men you desire sexually, but women that occupy your romantic fascinations. Yeah. I'm really interested by what you mean by that and why do you think that is? Um, I've always been that way. I've always found it incredibly hard to sit through a film that doesn't have women Me too. in it. Like, <laughs> And I can't judge the level of its art. If yeah. it does, like I can't, well, I, I know I had to walk out of The Revenant because there's no women in it. Yeah. Um, I know that the idea of the remake of Dead Ringers with two Rachel Vices is like pure heaven relaxation to me to get to look at her face mm. double every week for, I hope it's an hour long show, Yeah, is just a real source of calm. Um, for me and when I met when I wrote and directed on together I cast Jemima Kirk it was that same feeling of like here's a face that I can dream into I can dream into women's faces in a way that I can't with men Mm. I I don't get the same um (laughs) this is gonna sound really strange but there are particular female faces and no I'm saying I'm noting for myself I'm saying faces not bodies and that is actually what I mean that feels like getting into a hot bath at the end of a day and just being like, oh my God, just immersing yourself Mm. in them as a way. It's very simple. I can't dream into men the way I can with women. Mm. I know what you mean about Jemima Kirk as well. She really, she has that very striking. Yeah, Yeah. it's a very distinctive look. You don't, it doesn't kind of conjure up the same feelings. Can I give you a good, good example? So I remember when I was living in Los Angeles, I, I think I am more um, uh, compelled by female beauty than any men I've ever known. So when I was living in LA, I remember for a period at the Chateau Marmont, Jodie Turner-Smith, the, the actress, who if you don't know oh, her, yeah. it, it's not normal how beautiful <laughs> she is. And she was working as a hostess. Really? Yeah, like wow. the, the maitre d' who yeah. would show you to your table at the restaurant. This is years ago. And I remember just seeing her being like, this isn't, something's not right. It, like, I obviously didn't know who she was, but I knew that I was meant to be looking into her face and that she wasn't meant to be yeah. leading me to my table. That's so interesting. Um, yeah. And I think um, I've had several like quite startling experiences like that in my life. Two weeks before I got married, I was chosen in LA for jury duty really? on a case that was about 
a wife who murdered her husband during a domestic argument. Like that's a play, isn't it? To, right before you get married. That is such a good for thing for a writer. And it was, it was incredibly grueling and gnarly and yeah. disturbing and you had to look at horrific autopsy oh. pitch. It was really nasty and it went on and on and on. Like it was going right up days before my marriage. And there was a moment where they called to the witness stand a woman who happened to be beautiful. And I remembered it just gave me, and I was looking around to see if other jurors had the same response, just a moment to get back on my feet, like just to catch my breath. Mm. Am I broken? I think, I know it's weird. <laughs> I know what you mean. It's like there's something comforting about it. And like, is it is it because that's what we've all been conditioned to want for ourselves and then feel therefore like totally enchanted when we see it in the flesh because we want to be that or do we want to always just have like admiration for that or respect? I don't know what it is, but it's like that. I feel like that's what we've been sold as like the paragon of our existence is to yeah. be beautiful. So when you yeah. see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe and it's, it's personal, isn't it? I mean, for me, a lot of it, it like again to go back to Jemima or, or mm. Rachel Vice, they're very extreme features. Like it, the the eyes are extreme, the eyebrows yeah. are extreme, the lips, the mat, all of it. It's not like it's the opposite of a Barbie, where everything. Which is, I think, in a maybe my perception is that in British pop culture, the Barbie look is considered on a wide scale the most desired where everything's in the right place maybe I'm not being fair but that's how it feels just like mm. reading the paper everything's the right size and unobtrusive and petite and order there's an order mm. to it that does nothing for me um you know it's the thing it's the Sophia Loren thing of like when you take it all apart it's too much yeah you know and you put it all together and it's like just take me away the world is overwhelming just let me look at you for two hours at one point in the book you write that you spent the years between 16 and 26 feeling a debt of gratitude to the men who wanted you that is I think such a common experience I know from the listeners of this podcast that's a really common experience because they tell me I've experienced that it's you know it goes into what we're talking about how you know we're conditioned a female beauty is this kind of mm. social professional currency mm. and I wonder what you think the consequences of that gratitude are when it comes to the decisions that we make in our love lives because it's like it gives it hands the power over to the other person well look I feel incredibly lucky and grateful that I am too old to have <laughs> been beginning my sexual travels during the era of internet porn because a hundred million percent um girls younger than me a generation younger than me um are really confused about what they're into or what they want and what their boundaries are mm. um and that i think is from talking to them about things being replicated that have been seen on a screen um on a small screen, even worse, you know. Um, so I think I would be in a lot more trouble. I don't, I, that is unfathomable to me, navigating that. Mm, it reminds me of, did you see there was this big debate on Twitter recently about choking? Yeah. And about like, that. It's so it's been so interesting reading the dialogue around it because there was like an older man who wrote a column being outraged mm. that this was something that women would do it that men were doing to women mm. and then there are some women who say they really enjoy it and then there are so many other women who say that 
it's the most normal thing in the world and men and they don't like it but they kind of deal with it because yeah. it's so normalized yeah. and men often do it without asking and yeah. that's the difficult yeah, bit yeah, yeah. when there's no consent it's it's so it's so wild and that's obviously something that must come from porn well i think um well, there's a brilliant book actually called Female Chauvinist Pigs by Ariel Levy that came out probably 20 years ago now. But it talks about, so if you're my age, if you're in your 40s, the influence of growing up under Madonna is really important because it, it was essentially you can do whatever you want with whoever you want to do it mm. with, which is a really different message from you should appear sexually available to whoever is interested in you. Really different. So that by the time you get to... Do you remember Girls Gone Wild, which is like turn of the, is that like 2000, something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah. She did, Ariel Levy did um, a chapter where she went on tour with Girls Gone Wild. And, you know, you get like sorority girls drunk at parties who agree to masturbate on camera for Girls Gone Wild. And this girl beating herself up because she felt really bad that she couldn't come on camera. And, oh. and the author being like, well, were you turned on? Yeah. And that had not crossed her mind. And I think... You are now looking at potentially a generation of of girls going through that mm. existential crisis. Yeah. And speaking of power dynamics, your first memoir, Your Voice in My Head, it examines this relationship with this kind of powerful person in the public eye. Mm. And in this book, you obviously write about your divorce from Ben, who is a famous yeah. actor. Yeah. I want to ask you a bit about being with someone who has that ostensible power of celebrity and the power that we grant celebrities and just how that affects you in, in terms of your relationship and having that like added level of external scrutiny and observation. Mm -mm -mm. Let me think about that. Um, I mean, I remember, yeah, with your voice in my head, it's definitely feels up a kind of magical realist uh, test when your heartbreak is writ large on, you know, posters on the underground. And then it's sort of amazing when it goes away eventually and like you run into each other in real life and everything's fine. And um, you see the movies with it no longer being the person that, you know, you were so entwined with entranced mm. by mesmerized by but it's all sort of an I think that book really connected because by dint of um the guy that I felt heartbroken by being a movie star um it's just a writ large version of how people feel when they're heartbroken and um how big it feels and how haunting it feels mm. those were all just symbolic to the readers who yeah. grasped that book you know the idea of like that when you are on your daily travels to work they are there on the walls haunting you I've always thought that that's why that book hit mm. because it's obviously like not relatable at all to be with a movie star so that's not what it was about it was about 
um, the, the the haunting, I mm. think. But that's what people. I find so interesting about it because it, it's like you said, it's it's a very real experience, but it's it's so magnifying these feelings that everyone has yeah. because to, to anyone in love with someone, yeah. that person they is a movie present. star. Yeah. That person yeah. is someone's yeah. movie star. Yeah. And like, you know, even if they're not on a billboard somewhere, yeah. they're always in a yeah. place in your head. And, and yeah, to that point, what, if their gaze falls on you, that means something. And if their gaze is no longer on you, who are you then? Well, exactly. But that's what I think is dangerous <laughs> because then that you give that person this power that is just like, because again, it magnifies everything. It's like you've been chosen not just by a regular yeah. person, yeah. by someone who really matters. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's kind of psychologically yeah no but up. I do understand with the with the fullness of time with 10 years from the publication of mm. that book that that's what was affecting people was that just by writing about a, a breakup with a, a huge star you're you're writing in a very accessible way counterintuitively about just how it feels to navigate heartbreak Let's move on to discuss yeah. the loves of your life. So you are wearing the first I'm wearing love. a Fifi Chachnil, um Angora sweater. I have, do you know what? When I went to pick it out today, I was kind of mortified by how many I have. <laughs> um, I have colors that I didn't remember. That really? I ha- it's really, it taps into a lot of things for me. What you'll see when I go today, I will leave Angora on your <laughs> studio <laughs> Uh, chair. <laughs> I like the idea that you, a person leaves a mark, good or bad, mm-hmm. like when you leave a man in the morning that they could be like, oh, that, that was from her or like, fuck's sake, you know, like that. I kind of don't care if I leave an irritating or pleasing mark. Yeah, I just like something, something being residual. Um, I'm very, very tactile. I've always grown up with cats. I've always had them. And so in the person I'm attracted to and in myself touch and softness and furriness and all of that is really important to me like I remember having a boyfriend who I was crazy attracted to and then one day he showed up to pick me up and he'd put gel in his hair and it was so distressing to me that I could barely speak because the idea of having to touch that and not touch the texture yeah. that I was used to and that I 
when I'm into a guy, I know how their hair feels from like three different angles. I know how it feels at the nape of their neck. I know how it feels above their ears. Mm. All of that stuff is really important to me. I visually love the sweater girl look. Um, Twin Peaks was on TV first run when I was, I think 12, I think around 12 or 13. So like a really pivotal age. And um, the big sex symbol from that show was Audrey Horn, who was uh, a uh, wicked uh, schoolgirl slash femme fatale who, I think they were all meant to be about 17, you know, American mm. high schools from Greece to Twin Peaks. It's like, who is this 37-year-old divorcee playing a 17-year-old? But you know what I mean? Like, she she was amazing. She was so beautiful, that Sherilyn Fenn. Um, and what David Lynch was doing and what he pretty much always does is his take on the golden age of Hollywood look. You know, that's also what he was doing with the sweaters. He put um, Naomi Watson in uh, Mulholland Drive. Mm -hmm. Um, So Twin Peaks was very, very sweater girl, heavy, direct callback to 50s, 40s and 50s movies that I then fell down a rabbit hole and got very, very into. yeah, the sweater girl is a real like classic pinup look that works if you're pre- on pretty much anyone. But I was curvy as a teenager before I was ready <laughs> to be. And it was a way, I think, of transitioning into embracing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, simultaneously in pop culture, you had Riot Girl, you had Courtney Love, you had a band I really love, The Breeders, where Kim and Kelly Deal um, would wear probably now I'm thinking about it um for economic reasons all those emergent um riot girl singers were thrifting Mm -hmm. um were were wearing fantastic 1950s thrift store sweater beaded sweaters um real sort of grandma sweaters Mm -hmm. and the look that Courtney Love did that was similar um and that riot girl was doing with with the like the the slips and that that was also all 50s but less um conducive to english weather mm. so sweaters ideal perfect became sort of a sig- signature for me i never left it behind and then i realized once i was married and marriage my marriage didn't feel like a good fit to me that i was still collecting various sweaters whenever i could and that maybe they were a weird attempt to cling to a kind of 50s housewife domesticity look. Like I started to question why I was so attached to them. And tell us about the second love of your life, the film that you chose. I chose Paper Moon, the Peter Bogdanovich movie starring Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill. Um, she won, uh, it, I believe she's remains the youngest ever Oscar winner. She was 10 oh, really? when she won the best supporting yeah. actress Oscar for paper moon. Um, it's a father daughter road hijinks road movie, um, in depression era, middle America, um, mainly through Kansas. And, uh, it's in black and white. It's visually, absolutely beautiful but the emotional layers of um her meeting this man at her mother's funeral 
wondering if he's her father. You know, because they really are father and daughter, that he is her father. Him refusing to accept it, but in his way, by the end, accepting it, even though he's still in denial. Her, you know, the the, the cinematic classic of the a wise beyond their years um, child with her purity and her heartbreak under her wisecracks. Um, in terms of the humor, the dialogue, and the visuals and the supporting characters and the way they're shot, it's a massive influence on the Coen brothers, who, because I am a human with a beating heart, I love. Um, and it's a film that is really, really funny, um, really charming, you can't really walk away from because it's so much fun, but it is also sort of quietly devastating. And in real life, it did devastate Tatum O'Neill's life. Um, her memoir is one of the most, like, I really felt very unwell after reading her memoir, um, how much she wanted to have a relationship with her father, how she did that film thinking that it would give her the relationship she dreamt of with her father and how the acclaim she won for it um, he's dead, so who gives a fuck about, you know, even mincing words now? It enraged him, and he was mm. horrific to her, horrible to her, um, never forgave her. Mm, God. Um, I mean, absolutely brutal. You wrote in, in your email when you, get, when you sent yeah. that to us that, you know, the film, kind of, as a memoirist, made you, you know, you've thought a lot about what of your personal life is worth sacrificing in the name of great art. Yeah. How do you make that decision and in terms of what to sacrifice? And do you think it's always a sacrifice? Okay, so what I always do, the great thing, well, no, the, the, the difficult thing, but also kind of the great thing with writing books is that there is, as you know, a minimum of a year between turning it in and it coming out. Um, there's a nice through line for me in having written and directed a movie the time that I took in the edit room and how much I enjoy editing my work. So I always feel like write it um, and see if a year later it feels worthy of any blowback it could cause. And if I am writing about people in my life and I care about those people and they've been good to me, of course, I always, well, not of course, a lot of people don't do this. I always give it to them to see if they want changes and the reactions over the years have been really interesting I even had um, a friend who I adored who I gave it to and he's like that's not how it went down and I was like oh my god I'm so sorry I'll what happened how you know I'll correct it he's like no that's not how it went down but don't change it you're a writer you know keep it the way it is um which was really fascinating um and um I think it has to be a balance between stuff that will be useful for other people to read and stuff that's actually useful for yourself to unpick on the page and make safe. Um, stuff that if you don't write it down and write it down well is just pain, whereas once it's safe on the page, mm-hmm. it's pain that's been burned as an offering to the gods. Mm-hmm. Um that's what I'm aiming for. How do you feel about the difference? Because you've written novels as yeah. well and, and obviously a film. How do you feel about the difference between writing memoir and writing fiction? Well, and, and I guess incorporating, because I mean, I'm writing my first novel now. Yeah. A lot of it is fictionalized experiences yeah. that I've had. And it's a very different way of 
writing about like your life directly and then also and then taking something that's happened to you and turning it into a story but it still comes from you well so my favorite novel that I've written is Royals which is the novel that came before this memoir yeah. and I wrote it because there was stuff in my personal life that I was really wrestling with really troubled by but I couldn't write it as memoir that was not something I was able to do and so I reversed genders, I changed decades, I completely threw the stuff that was bothering me through the lens of total imagination. Um, and it gave me the power back that I needed and the healing that I needed. Um, and then pragmatically, it was sort of interesting to have written for the first time ever as a man instead of as a woman um, and to see that it got the best reviews of any of my novels. Um, Interesting. It may just be that it was better writing. Like, I'm not discounting that mm. at all. But I was also interested in doing that experiment. Mm. Yeah. And tell us about your third and final. I um, bought it for you. I'm so um, pleased you did. <laughs> okay, so I have a facialist in when I was living in Los Angeles mm -hmm. called Terry Lawton, who is a very fancy a-list, facialist of the stars, mm -hmm. um, waiting list to get in, who I have not seen in the flesh probably, I want to say, in eight years. Oh, really? But she remembers my skin and uh. she makes me my own personal, she makes all of her clients who want it their own personal face cream. Now, this is uh. very cool because as, if you see, it says face cream which is like wearing a t-shirt that says sport yeah you know? <laughs> or like that. you know like a shirt that says rock <laughs> um and it works now that yeah. this cream is alluring and freakish to me because when I run out of it when I don't have it I look older um and I mean, you have incredible skin. I have really damn good skin. Yeah, <laughs> I really, really, no, really good skin. I'm 46. I have really good skin, apart from when the face cream runs out. Um, and with, and I don't know the content. I know from another client. So this is a very magical, this is the closest I have to an elixir, a potion in my life. Um, I know from another client of hers, she says, oh yeah, those, those creams, it's stem cell cream and it has... Um, baby's foreskins in it that's what she told me and <laughs> have not investigated it but I'm fine with that that's fine who gives a shit completely <laughs> fine with it one it's reusing which yeah. as we all know is good for the planet um two I think it's really kind of awesome that I moved from Los Angeles to England carrying foreskins potentially knowing I was moving back to the country where they don't circumcise wow. um, every time I go to LA I pick up another pot of it and anytime a friend is coming from LA I have them bring me rock bring me one and then you know the incredible selfishness of borders shutting down with the pandemic and being like how am I gonna get my fucking face <laughs> cream um, and I remember being really uh, amazed to read in Dita Von Teese's Beauty Guide, a book I highly recommend. She's mm. an intelligent woman and a beautiful woman. Is that 
You should never be, but you should only be buying your face creams from your facialist or the dermatologist because mm. when you're buying from Dior or Estee Lauder or Chanel, what you are paying for is the contract they have with an A-list star. Mm, that's, that's, so that's the price of the cream is the $12 million a year that they're paying to Charlize Theron or mm. whatever. So that has nothing to do with the content of the cream and it's yeah. basically useless for your personal skin. Um, I feel really good that Terry, though I haven't seen her in so many years, it's like, it's such a magical weird potion that connects me to who I was. Mm. Um, and the fact that- Just you looking like who well, you maybe. are as well. And the fact that she's <laughs> thinking of me, the only- other feeling really similar to it. It's going to sound so weird. And this shows you, this is actually, actually weirdly a good example of the tone and the paths in Busy Being Free mm. is that the only feeling to me similar to, to Terry, the A-list facialist <laughs> making me this cream is the North London, the suburban North London milkman delivering my milk in bottles. Oh, yeah. And when I get it, I'm like, someone did something nice for me at five in the morning and is connected to me even though we don't know each other and there's a magic to it that it appearing and me leaving the money out there and yeah. the, and the emptying and the refilling the milk bottles are connected to the Los Angeles face cream yeah. for me in how they make me feel safe it's also a nostalgia thing though because i think that though both of those things like the idea of like, you know having a milkman bring you milk when yeah. you know you could just order it on deliveroo like yeah. it's, it's a thing of the past yeah. it's like a relic of i don't know human connection yeah. that we just don't get that yeah, much yeah. and anymore. that i exist to her even though she hasn't seen yeah. me as sort of the ultimate you think about at night with love right it's like do i still exist we're not in touch am i somewhere in the recesses of their mind mm. where i am I'm so interested in beauty <laughs> regimes and like, you know, the things that women do to ourselves in order to try and yeah. <laughs> maintain the way that we look. Yeah. And I can imagine that there is a big difference between that environment in LA and that environment in London. Have you noticed that? Well, the answer that people don't like me giving here is that I see much worse surgery in London like oh, I see really? much more noticeable injectables like there's been so many times in London when I first moved here on the underground where it's like am I meant to say to the person on the underground that their eyebrows look insane <laughs> they look insane like maybe nobody's gonna tell them if I yeah. a recent import back to the city <laughs> doesn't say that's not what it's meant <laughs> to look like um I think there's better surgery in LA. I was about to say the first thing that comes to my mind is the people that know what they're doing are in LA. Yeah. yeah. And um, well, look, look at Marilyn Monroe. She, you know, it, they've gone through her old x-rays and what we could see was true. She had a nose job and she had a chin implant. And that's like, what is it? 70 years ahead of surgery being done now that's bad surgery. Yeah. And hers was amazing. Um, I think the other misnomer about LA is actually... My experience of it was much less eating disordery than in England, mm -hmm. than in London, certainly. Like London, probably having grown up under Kate Moss and her and Cheek and all of that, maybe I'm overly alert mm -hmm. to it. But I see um, skinniness celebrated in London, UK culture, whereas in LA, 100 million percent was about uh, strength and muscles oh, and tone and... 
you know, uh, to me, a cla- you know, the classic L.A. look is Jennifer Lopez, is um, who's the astonishingly, Je- Jessica Biel. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Like those are, those women could hurt you if they wanted yeah. to. They're athletes. And that's not a London look to me. That That's Los Angeles. So maybe I'm being defensive mm. about my old town, but um, I think it's actually way less fucked up than you think it is. Interesting. Do you think that women in the public eye who have had work done yeah. owe us that information? Because that's a whole debate about like, if you know, because obviously there are so many people in the public eye that it's kind of obvious that yeah, they've yeah. had quite a lot of work done, but they often don't tell people. You know, it took Kylie Jenner however long to tell people that she'd had her lips done, for yeah. example, and Bella Hadid with her nose job. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But, and they get a lot of scrutiny for not being open about what they've had done. But do you think that they owe us that or not? I can't, I don't I mean, know what I'd feel I about I think that. it's psychotic. I, 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 so <laughs> I, once a year, if I can, I'll go and see Dr. Colbert, who is a... Amazing um, Botox fairy who uh, is generally in New York, sometimes Los Angeles. And all the women in the public eye who are celebrated for allowing themselves to age beautifully, naturally, with dignity, are clients of his. <laughs> this is what I mean. Um, of course they are. But people don't know that. But the way you would know is if you go, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this because he's a wonderful, uh, cultured, uh, charming a generous man is if you go to his Instagram page, if there's a celebrity on his page promoting sunscreen, it usually means that they were in that day for injectables. <laughs> they so also funny. are using his sunscreen, <laughs> but yeah, for sure. And he does something I've never seen anywhere else. Trade secret potentially, mm. but I'll tell you is um, he doesn't put Botox in one place. Like he would never put Botox in your forehead mm. or on the sides of your eyes. He puts a billion tinsy insy wincy little drops all over your whole face including in your scalp so everything just goes uh and relaxes i've never found that anywhere else and so i would not risk doing it anywhere else but i'll completely fess up i do that once a year when i can track yeah that's it for today thank you so much for listening and watching you can subscribe to us on all major podcast platforms and also watch us on independent tv all connected devices and major social media platforms thank you so much and i will see you soon Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 